Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Professor Martin Cormican, good morning. Good morning. Uh, Martin, I think you've uh, opened a can of worms. Um, well, if I have started us talking about something that I need to, to talk about, then I think that's a good thing. Um, uh, there's a very recognised process called after action review um, for public health emergencies. There's manuals of how to do this from Europe and WHO. And the process is about learning so that we do better in the future, not about looking back to, to blame. So the yeah. after action review and, and I, if um, I didn't set out to open a can of worms, but I am, I think it's a good thing that we've started to talk about. And I, I've tried to make it clear in the in what I wrote that it's not like Ireland was the worst performer. I think we did a lot of things well, and that's really important. Yeah. We did do a lot of things well, and, yeah. and it's good that we should recognise that and in credit to all those who contributed to the things we did well. Absolutely. But there are things we could have done better, and that's that, That's why I called the, the paper the Marion Dashwood test is is the, the story in, in uh, Jane Austen where Marion is asked by her sister if she compared her conduct to that of, of the of the cad, the bad guy. And she said, no, I compare it to what it ought to have been. And so the question is not, you know, how did we do compared to France or Germany or China? The question should be, could we have done better? Ought we to have done better? And I'm suggesting that me and everybody else should learn from what we've been through so that we are able to do it better if something like this happens again. OK. And, and just to explain to people, uh, you are now the Professor of Bacteriology in the University of Galway. And prior to that, um, you were HSE lead on infection prevention and control. You were a member of NEFIT for a time, but you were in the room when many of the decisions around Ireland's COVID response were made. You delivered, as you say, this paper. You say in it, among other things, and we'll, we'll come to all of this and break it down, that we excessively restricted personal freedom. You think we caused profound adverse consequences for society. And you say that we caused years, decades, if not lifetimes of harm to uh, to children, to some children anyway. Um, I suppose your point is, and, and look, we acknowledge that Ireland had in many ways a good pandemic, but you think that we did not achieve a, a balance, I think is what you're saying, that we had a very narrow focus on on a particular strand of health, but that we didn't think of health in a broader way. Can I ask you first then, what damage do you think was done to people by our pandemic response? Well, there are several things. That, and of course, all health policy is, is balancing risk. So what we were, did in the pandemic response was always going to have positive effects and negative effects. Every policy decision does. And the question and the real challenge, and it's difficult for everyone. And, you know, I acknowledge I was in the room and it wasn't easy for me either, is trying to get that balance right. But the harms that we saw, for example, would be um, first, I would, I suppose, focus on children. So children were deprived of education for a very long period of time. Um, the effects of that were most dramatic on the children who were already most marginalised and on children with special needs. Um, who were deprived of education. And so I know, as indeed I'm sure many people do know of, of people in communities that we had contact with who had children, for example, with, with special needs who, who lost years of progress mm. um, and who were, who were, their lives, we question, you know, will they ever recover from, from 
the, the skills that had been painfully built up over years by their parents and, and, and uh, the educational system. So much was lost. Um, so that's that was a huge loss for those kids, children, particularly children who who were in difficult social circumstances. P- kids who were in better circumstances were it was still a loss for them, but their parents and their families were often in a better position to support them. But for the kids who were most disadvantaged, um, structure, school was often a key thing that gave them structure to their lives. It was often how they accessed things, even things as basic as food and other things were often linked to their school attendance. And that was and, and that was lost. And then everybody um, lost um, social contact. But the impacts I talked to my colleagues who work with um, older people who would say that for many older people, there was a huge loss of skills. There was a huge loss of muscle mass. And you know, so so I'm not saying that all of that was avoidable. But I think that if we ever have to do this again, we need to think more carefully about the balance between the short term goal of trying to stop the spread of infection and the long term consequences of some of those measures that we put in place. I don't pretend that that's ever going to be an easy balance to find, but I think the focus needs to be clearer. We need to put a greater emphasis on it's it's a trade off that policy decisions are trade offs. And of course, it's it's natural and human in a sense to focus on what's happening in front of you, the cases of COVID. That's understandable. But we need a broader view of what the long term. And even now I've met people in the last week, colleagues in the healthcare system who've kind of come to me and said, you know, we're still struggling with the consequences of the losses that people had in terms of skills and well-being and health um, from the loss of daycare services and you know so there were lots uh, and of course we see it in the healthcare system as well. Do you know as well that um, you know the metaphor of building the plane as as it was flying and people facing a very unpredictable situation there were so many unknowns to it that I suppose was excessive caution not justified? So I think in, in the very early stages um, we need to, well, I suppose maybe before I get to that, I should just say is yeah. that part of this is is about what can we learn to do it better and yeah. how do we get the balance better in the future? So again, I'm not trying to, I was one of the people who was involved. I'm not trying to blame me or anybody else. I'm trying to say how could do it be better? Uh, yes, uh, we have completely. To I think, look, we, we let's say that, but, take that as a given now that this is a worthwhile conversation to have, but you are not trying to screw anyone over no, or, or blame I'm, anyone I'm not, or anything uh, else. But I think the question is, yes, we had to do that. And in the early stages, you, you, I think it's appropriate and necessary to say, right, we, we may have to shut everything down for two or three weeks while we figure things out. But one of the things that I think is really important is that when we do that in the future is that we have better processes for revisiting and reevaluating those decisions within a defined time frame. So a parallel that I would draw, for example, is the system that we now have in place around mental health. So there is a system where somebody who is becomes a, a real a risk to themselves because of mental illness can have their liberty removed, but it's it, there is a process for a structured review of whether that decision was was appropriate or not within a defined time period. So if we have to do this again, we do need to retain the capacity to make fast public health decisions. We absolutely do and I completely support that. But what we also need is a process that any restrictions that are imposed are reviewed from a human rights and civil liberties perspective within three or four weeks by people who aren't intimidated by the, the you know the public health issues. Were, were people intimidated? Well, 
it strikes me, and, and I've seen this happen before in other settings as well, is that I think groups who who normally deal with civil and polit- political liberties issues and all of those kind of things, they tend to work in the context where those restrictions are being imposed in relation to sort of people's political agendas or so on. And I think it seems to me that they feel to some degree disempowered when those restrictions are labelled public health. And so for for quite some time, I've had this idea in my head that we need to think about this idea of a sort of infection justice is, is how do we have better systems for managing rights and freedoms um, in the context of infection? Because, as I say, it seems to me that Many of the groups that nor I've, and again, I, I you know, I, I was. But they were told to follow the signs, I suppose, and that's what we all yeah. had to do, wasn't it? It's interesting about they science. weren't scientists. They weren't scientists, but that's why I think maybe we need to think about how do we get, as I say, an infection rights group where you have both rights and infection specialists working together, so that we can balance that. Following the science is interesting. To me, science is often presented as as being about, or at least I think it's often understood as being about certainty. But science, is, to me, is about uncertainty. It's about how do we manage uncertainty and reduce uncertainty. Following the science, science, the other thing I think that I've discovered in conversations with people in the last week is that some people think I said science was immoral, and I didn't. I said it was amoral. So science can be used for all sorts of purposes. and and. The response, we should not in our public policy follow science. We should be informed by science, but we should follow values. So what is it that we value? So and okay. and, and, and getting that balance between um, the short term issue of managing the infection and the long term issue of what is it that we value as a society. So all those people who said we needed a broader set of skills in effort and who thought we needed to be taking into account more uh, people who worked in, in social, economic, all those areas, that they should have been part of the process and listened to from the beginning. Those people were all right, were they? Well, I don't know if we necessarily needed to have a broader number of people in Neffet. Neffet was already quite big, but I think probably... and. When I say this, you said, diversity. You, you said about building things on the fly. So I think what I'm talking about now is how we construct okay. the future. So it's not like I think I have all the answers. Yeah. I have lots of questions and I think that's a good place to Were start. Were people intimidated as well within the system? Were people intimidated in, in, in effort from um, speaking up? Well, I have. I can speak, say from my experience that I was never restricted from expressing my views. And did you express all these yes. views at the time? You were well. There. I expressed the views I held at the time. I mean, we all learn, and I, you know, um, and so some of the things I might think about differently now than I think about two years ago, because that's. But but I, I, I never felt that I couldn't express my views and effort. Okay. There were other issues which I've talked about about process and so on. But I never felt that I was prevented from expressing my views. Were there other people expressing similar views in effort? There was a diversity of opinion, and um, it's in you know of course there should be. There's very little point of having a committee of experts who agree on everything. What you want is people in the room who who disagree, and you try to reach a consensus. I think for the people, and, and was the consensus that was reached uh, the right one? Was it effective usually, or was was the setup of a d- dysfunctional? by definition, kind of. Well, one of the things that I think we we could do better if we do this again is the process for the recommendations being reviewed by all members of the group before it goes to government. Now, I know some people would say that there wasn't time to do that. I think that that was surmountable with electronic communication. 
I would acknowledge that there was another real challenge for the people who were running the process, um, which was, it was my perception, um, I think it was others' perception, but certainly it was my perception that there was, there was a tendency for some of the discussions in NEFIT to become public domain very quickly. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm for transparency, but, but the NEFIT recommendations should have been seen by the government before they were seen by anybody else. And, and that the fact that they tended to leak, I think, complicated things. But nevertheless, I think if we're trying to do this in the future, I think a process of having the written final draft or the final draft recommendations approved by everybody who is on the group would be a more robust process, acknowledging okay. that it's not necessarily going to be easy to do. But that's what we should be working towards is is as we do with, with most other meetings or committees or things that, you know, people like I work of. You have a meeting, there's a draft minutes. I'm sure we've all worked on this. Then the draft minutes are sent out and they become final when everybody agrees that that's what was agreed. Yeah, and look, you accept that's, as well. That's that, the normal that, process. Yeah, but you would accept as well that often the letter had to go very quickly and as you say, it was all leaking and... And uh, and, and that was it, difficult, exactly, but there could yeah. have been a process around that. I okay, yeah. okay. Um, by the way, you were you were brought on to Neffet when about a year into the pandemic. Uh, yes, about February of twenty, about uh, about twelve months after the pandemic started. Given you were the HSE lead on infection prevention and control, why weren't you on Neffet from the start? Well, I don't know. Um, I, I I think were you that surprised. Was, yes, I, I was surprised. I expressed my surprise. It was no secret. Uh, it was an infection pandemic. And it's not about me personally, let me say. I mean, the office that I occupied at the time was the HSE's lead advisor in infection prevention and control. For the HSE's lead advisor in infection prevention and control not to be on the advisory group never made any sense to me. That was, any, okay. I, I and I don't ask, know why. I won't, okay, I don't I won't, know why. and I won't ask you to, to speculate on that. Okay, so if we get into some of the specifics of what you've been talking about, and look, we'll remind people again, and, and I know you're on the same page with this as well, Ireland had a relatively successful pandemic compared to other countries, six lowest death rate per 100,000 people in Europe. We did many, many things right, and you're not in any way disputing all of that. So we'll take that as given, and then what we're talking about here is maybe lessons we can learn. So nursing home visits was a very uh, emotional, emotive issue for a lot of people, and rightfully so. You think it was wrong that so many people had to die alone. You think it was wrong that so many people had to spend their final weeks or months without contact with their loved ones. Yes. Um, so the recommendation to so the, what we, the recommendation to ban um, all visits to nursing homes other than compassionate grounds. I do, I don't know who advised that that was necessary. I know it wasn't. I was the infection prevention control lead for the HSE. I know it wasn't me that advised it. Um, I don't know where that advice came from. Uh, to be honest, I can't remember now where that came from. But it's not that visiting was risk free. It was a risk. It's it's going back to that question of what it is that we value. Um, and so if we had limited, and I, again, you know, the pre-pandemic, it was a situation where anybody who wanted kind of walked into nursing home, open visiting. I don't suggest that that was practical during the pandemic, but a complete ban on visiting was never a humane thing to do. 
were there risks associated with allowing a certain amount of visiting so that people weren't alone? There were risks, but in my view, there were risks we had to accept because... Would more people not have died in... I mean, enough people as it was died in nursing homes. I think over a quarter of our deaths were in nursing homes, weren't they? Would more people have died in nursing homes if if we had allowed visit more visiting? They might have, and that becomes a question about what it is. And again, it's what do we as a society value? And do we value... Is it is it how I live? Um, is it you know is is it how I live um, and how I die more important than how many days I live and when I die? Mm. Um, and for me, and I think for many people, and for many of the people I knew who were close to me, um, how they lived um, and how they died was actually very important. And so yes, there were risks with having some access, but there were risks that. In my view, we should and have accept, and that's the conversation we now need to have. Yeah. Is uh, it's not, I, I, you know, I don't run the country, nor I have any aspiration to do so. But as a society, we need to have a conversation about what we prioritise. And and to me, it was more important that people had access to the people that they loved. There was some risk associated with that. In my view, okay. it was a risk we had to accept. Your own mother died in a nursing yes. home during that time, didn't she? And yes. Were, were, were you? Uh, Subject to all these rules, did they m- m- impact on the end of her life? Yes. So uh, I, I suppose the first thing I'd like to say about that is that the, the, the staff in the nursing home who cared for her were outstanding. So does, it's really important to say that because it, they, they, they were super people. Um, um, and the only limitation for her was that they weren't her people. They weren't her. her. That was the, you know, and that was really important. When she was initially in hospital, um, we were told that at one stage that she couldn't have any visitors. And I did contest that because it wasn't in my understanding in keeping with the national health guidelines at the time. So I appealed for to, to the senior um, management and there was limited access was provided. When she went to a nursing home initially, we had some access initially, but then they there was a they were advised on the basis of a, a suspected outbreak not to allow any visiting. So we had no Rights, but th- this this isn't about me actually, because I had no right to see my mother. What what's actually important here was my mother's right to see who she wanted to see, um, whether it was me or anybody else. So it's it's not about me. It's about about yeah, her no, and all the people like her. Yeah, um, all the people like her, and and for my mother, and I think probably for many other people. So before she went to the nursing home, we had a long period of pandemic, and she was always very clear that. Um, she wanted to see us and she wanted to see her grandkids and anybody she wanted she that she, she was prepared to accept whatever risk there was to keep in contact with her family that was her priority so for her it was how i live and okay okay for um, her it was how i live yeah. and how i die was more important than how many days and i think that was true for a lot of people you know, the nursing home staff were super. They were doing, they were following the rules um, and the rules couldn't be different for me than they were for anybody else. It's it's interesting um, what you say kind of philosophically that in a sense, I think some people wondered during the pandemic if we were trying to create a situation where nobody should die. We were trying to prevent all deaths at at, at all costs and prevent all risk. And a lot of medical people I spoke to during the time would say to you privately, this, 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 this is not how it works. This is not how life works. 
yes, we all die. Um, and as I say, I think it's it's a conversation, I think, where it's a broader conversation than the pandemic, actually. And it's, it's a, a difficult one because we'll accept there's huge yes. pain out there and yes. people lots of loved ones and all of that. I'm not suggesting in yes. any way we're callous about that. No, no, it is very difficult. And and I and I've been have people in contact me in the last week who ex- expressing their sort of their sense of hurt and anger about what their experience was. And I understand that. I understand that sometimes when people hurt are hurt and angry and they've said this to me, some of the people who've been in touch with me that they want to find out who was responsible. And I've said to them, I understand what your concern is. I understand your issue, but it's not mine. Mine is how do we do better? Yeah, no, Magella Beatty, who who you know of, who who heads Care Champions, the organisation representing the residents of relatives in nursing homes, she said, so when 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 your paper first became public, it was a, a week ago in the Irish Independent, she has said since, it's disappointing you did not act earlier when you were directly asked to allow for more visits by relatives and friends when drawing up visiting rules. So I didn't, the visiting rules that we had for nursing homes were, um, were developed by a group of people um, uh, and th- there was a lot of negotiation between a group of people involved. Um, I certainly never advocated for a complete ban in visiting. Um, uh, from my point of view, I, I'm, I did what I could practically do to to liberate. So, for example, at one point, there was only visiting on compassionate grounds, and and that was government policy. So, what we had to do was to tr- to broaden the definition of compassionate, okay. because yeah. that was how we could that was how we could work it. Because there was a government policy that we yeah. couldn't change. Okay. We had to work within that framework. And what we did, not just me, but colleagues, and and I had a wonderful team of people I worked with who were who had complete trust in which was great through all of this. Uh, the Americ team were wonderful people and we worked within a government policy that restricted visiting to compassion to broaden the definition of compassion. So to push to humanity into because, the cracks. Because that there. was that was that was the framework within which we had gotcha. to work. And you know, for all of the people um I wish I had could done better. I wish I had done better as well. You know, um, anybody who's been through this, uh, who contributed to this process, um, I think everybody wishes there was a way to have done better. And I suppose, again, going back to that point is the key is I'm not here to to pretend that everything I did was perfect. Yeah. I, I, I'm here to say that okay. we all need to try to learn to do better if it happens again. OK, and we'll, we'll come back to that point again because there's lots of text, but I want to go through some of the other uh, things as well. Now, we talked a little bit about schools earlier. So schools, I think, in Ireland were closed for 140 days, right? March to September 2020, Christmas to kind of March, April, depending on what class you're in, in 2021. Was that necessary to the extent we did it? It, it didn't. I don't believe it served the interests of children. Um um, but I did we not need to protect teachers? We were talking to people about being, you know, we were telling people don't more than two households mixing and all this. You're putting somebody potentially vulnerable with some kind of underlying condition with kids from 30 households in there. So do we not need to do it to, to so, mind them? So again, the, the question becomes of uh, that philosophy. What do we think education is? Um, to me, education is fundamental. Uh, it's a fundamental right. It is in our constitution a fundamental yeah. right. Actually, children are entitled to an education. Um, it's also the foundation for health. There's almost nothing more important for health than education. So, do we think he- education is an essential service, like the fire brigade, like the hospital? I think it is. It is an essential service and as an essential service, the people who work in it, I think, needed to accept that there were certain risks that everybody else and other essential. So, you know, there were there were 
pol- there were the guardy, the firemen, the healthcare workers. All of those services had to operate. The supermarkets, because we had to buy food, all those operated. So I don't understand why we thought the education of our children was anything other than an essential service, particularly, particularly the education of those children who were most uh, disadvantaged. And and there was a sort of for a while then there was what I have to say and what I experienced of it at least was a, a token thing of online education. It might have worked for some kids, but for the kids who need at school most, the online thing didn't really work at all. OK, but look, um, we will give it to the teachers that so many of them and great young people out there went above and, and beyond trying to keep students on board and trying to work between the system any way they could and and all of that to try and kind of keep students in touch and everything else. So, you know, the, the, there was great work done by teachers. Well, well like everybody, um, teachers are not, you know, doctors and teachers and everybody else. Nobody's a, homoge- a homogeneous group. Nobody's the same. Yeah. I, I know lots of teachers as well. I know lots of teachers who are embarrassed by the schools being closed as well, you know, so, yeah. but 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 they were closed and it did huge harm. And, and I think if, it's how we think about this. And I think as a society, if we're ever thinking about this again, we need to see education as an essential service. Neffet wanted to keep the schools open much more than they were, didn't they? The vast majority of public health people that I knew on Neffet, inside and outside, believed that school closure was not required for public health so purposes. So what happened there? Um, well, that's an interesting... Well, people often, I think, look back or even at the time say Neffet did this and Neffet did that and Neffet did the other. In fact, you know, Neffet couldn't stop you cycling down the street without a light on your bicycle. Neffet had no executive authority. Neffet was an advisory group and under the constitution, it's the government and the doll that make the rules. But you so, see, so the funny you say, yeah, OK, yeah. but funny you say that because a, a big argument that went on, uh, one of the many arguments over that few years was that Neffet had too much power and that whatever Neffet said, whatever the CMO said, the government would jump to it and that if they didn't, they'd learn their lesson fast and get back on side. And, and that's a really interesting point because I think if there is a view... So again, if we look back at it and we decide that Neffet had too much power or that any individual had too much power... Yeah, do you think Neffet had too much power? Well, technically, you know... Neffet actually had no power. The question became about its influence. And when I say it had no power, I'm talking about the law of the land. I mean, under the Constitution, Neffet had no power. Okay. If it had too much influence. Yeah, in practicality. If it had too much influence. Well, you know, I think the difference is important. If it had too much influence, that's because others others abdicated their their power. Um, So, so... Neffet or any other advisory group can only become too influential if it's allowed to become so. And you know, it's a democracy. So one thing that I suppose I often think of is that song Universal Soldier is, you know, the orders come from far away and no more. Um, in a democracy, we're all responsible for how things work. We choose the government and the government is the, is the government with authority. If any group or body is look, we look back in it and we say that group had too much power, this group had too much power, that individual had too much influence. Then the question is, why did we allow that to happen? And that could would, only happen I think if a lot other of people pulled back. Yeah, but a lot of people would say that um, debate was kind of shut down and back to like, you know, people were told, go back in your box, follow the science. Well, uh, we thought, you know, the follow the science bit, as I said, yeah, is Yeah, we is, dealt is, with is that. Key. But, 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 but would you agree so? 
that debate was a bit shut down. However it happened, we don't need to, again, blame anyone I think in terms one of, of the, learnings. I, I think one of the lessons about this is, again, for the future, is that piece about balancing and having, as I say, my infection rights issue is that we need to be people who we need to have a, a better ability to okay. challenge. Uh, you know, science is sometimes I think people like scientists, we can sound terribly authoritative about everything. Sometimes we can suggest that science is more definitive than it is. Yeah, I think okay, we need I much do, better yeah, systems we've, we've, to manage that. OK, yes. we've, we've covered that and there's lots more I want to talk to you about. Um, you think mask wearing uh, and particularly as practiced by all of us was largely pointless, do you? Yes. Um, so somebody uh, told me that I was a mask sceptic recently and, and the answer is I'm not. Infection prevention and control practitioners, which I have been for many years, have always recommended masks in certain contexts, in certain systems. So if somebody comes into the healthcare system with what looks like a viral respiratory tract infection, we always recommended that they should wear That's not you. That didn't start with the pandemic. We always recommended that the healthcare worker looking after them should wear a mask. That's new. It didn't start with, the, you know, that didn't start mm. with the pandemic. But, but I, it was my view and it remains my view that the generalised wearing of masks by everybody in the public, that the evidence base for that was, um, was, was at best weak, if, if not non-existent. Actually, just in the last couple of months, I see a, a big analysis of all the studies which says that they couldn't find any evidence that it's beneficial either. And, and part of the difficulty was so much of the conversation was about masks and what masks do. But infection prevention and control is a supremely practical discipline. And it's not about the mask, it's about the people. So it's not about what the mask might do if everybody wore it perfectly. It's about what people really do. Mm. And, and I know, and, and it's not me, infection prevention control practitioners, people who do this for a living will tell you that it's extremely challenging for professional healthcare workers in the workplace environment to wear PPE properly for an extended, like a mask is part of our PPE, to wear that properly for an extended period and to train people to do it is really very challenging. So there was really never any prospect in my view that the, that, that, that people, including healthcare workers in their general life were, and in every situation were going to wear the mask properly. And part of the concern about that then is that for when, when we were training, when we trained people in IPC, in infection prevention control, there's a way of putting on a mask and there's a way of taking it off. And there's the issue of you putting it on because you know you're going into a risk situation. And a lot of that got devalued because it became it became sort of the mask, the mask became to some extent a sort of rabbit's foot that, you, you know, um, I mean, you've seen people with masks under their chin, you've seen them with them under their nose. Uh, so it's it's not about what masks do. It's about what people do. And you I never on a, remember you put on a mask to get up from your table in the pub at one point for walking to the toilet and then you come back and take off the mask again. Manifestly nonsense. I mean, it, it, <laughs> nonsense. It, it manifests. And were but, you saying this at the time? I mean, yes. I, I think a lot of people would say we're never and, and the CMO a bit bounced into masks by a, a, a kind of a clamour from outside of Neffet. I, I don't know what bounced them into it, but I do know that in the first year there was an expert advisory group um, uh, and that the issue of masks was discussed at the expert advisory group on which I was a member at the time. Um, and, and I recorded... Uh, I asked the chair of that group to record my vote against the 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 
recommendation of universal mask use because I felt the evidence did not support it. So it wasn't, uh, it, there was, but again, if you, one of the pressures on Ireland and on people in general was what everybody else was doing. And what they did about masks in some other countries was even made no sense at all. I mean, whatever rationale there was for what we advised people to do, what was advised in some other countries, there were countries in which it was illegal to walk down the street in the middle of the night without a mask on. When there, was, it, there were countries where people in, in, in some European countries until very recently, you had to wear an FFP2 mask every time you went on public transport. The FFP2 masks were mostly the kind of FFP2 masks that don't work as FFP2 masks. You could have had it in your back pocket for a week, so it couldn't pass, but you had to wear it. So, so the mask thing wasn't, as with so many of the things, it wasn't, it wasn't Ireland only. Yeah. The whole world became... I think did part the whole of it was world, it comforted Did people. the whole world go mad and lose perspective completely here? Well, in my view, the advice on mask wearing in the vast majority in developed countries um, did not, was not supported by evidence. But, but I think part of it was, and I've had people say this to me as well, part of it was that it made people feel safer that they had a mask on. Okay. And the danger with that was that it was a deceptive feeling safer. So I would have often said to people, the best way to avoid risk is to keep the number of people you meet with to the smallest number possible and meet them outdoors if you can. I was confident that that worked. Yeah. But meeting more people indoors and thinking it was safer because everybody was wearing a mask that they were pulling up and down it was, was, I think, a deceptive sense of safety. OK, for people who've just joined us, we'll just uh, r- remind people, I'm talking to Professor Martin Cormican, who's the Professor of Bacteriology in the University of Galway. But prior to that was HSE lead on infection prevention and control and, and a member of, of NEFIT. Um, now, before we get, uh, I want, to, I'm being flooded with text, right? So I, I, there's a couple more things, though, that I'd like to just um, touch on with you, and then we might deal with some of the texts. You've used the words condescending and paternalistic uh, uh, about some of the, the measures and the, and the attitudes of those in charge. And I think some people thought that, w- were you referring in any, would you say condescending and paternalistic, applied to maybe the situation around restrictions to women having babies, their partners not being allowed to come to scans with them, which were often could be very emotional situations, maybe partners not being uh, allowed to be with them much during and after births and everything. A lot of people found that very uh, bruising. Yes, um, and the and the people who campaigned to change those engaged very very constructively to get that changed but but in fact was that I, paternalistic but what I was thinking of mostly, mostly when I wrote that was actually about older people um, that there was a t- and, and, and indeed particularly older people in, in nursing homes it was you know mm. it was a lot of it so what was in my mind when I wrote that was okay. the way let's, let's keep all the older people safe sort of thinking Whereas, in fact, the question was, well, what did the old, what did those people want? Um, and I do know that a lot yeah. of them, every time cocooning was mentioned, a lot of them were texting into this show uh, and they were furious uh, about it. So Can that's we go what back? primarily yeah. I had in mind when I wrote that. Yeah. Going back to the, the notion of paternalistic and going back to, say, the situation around maternity hospitals, a point that a, a, a lot of people, women particularly, started making as time went on, were there too many men on Neffet, not enough women? Yeah, I, I, I don't, well, I'd, it's probably a, um, 
Am I the person to ask that question? I don't know. I, I don't think about these kind of issues in terms of that. I think about the well, more that, people would say that is an unconscious bias that you should be thinking about. It. They are. Uh, did, but did you but, ever look around the room and think there's a lot of men here making decisions and a lot of them impact on women? My recollection is that there was I, I don't know what the breakdown was, but there was quite a number of women okay. as well it, as men. It, it, felt it, like it there wasn't. Was a it, 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 there certainly was, and 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 plenty of articulate colleagues, uh, uh, female colleagues, on and Neffet. So I don't think that was. I I think why part of what fed into that issue about maternity visiting again to, to try to look at it from the point of where we were at the time is people were afraid. Um, people were the, the healthcare workers were afraid in many cases in the early stages in particular they were afraid for themselves. They were also afraid for other people that they were looking for. And and again, it was that balancing of risks. So so I'm in we're in a big 10 bed open area and I want to see a visitor and you're in the next bed and you don't because you're afraid. That was a difficult thing because our infrastructure is so poor in some of our maternity hospitals that mm. that complicated things. And then the other thing that healthcare workers were, were really afraid of and it impacted on so much of the things we could have done better is they were afraid of being blamed because yeah. of zero risk thinking. So if there was an outbreak and and you, if you broke, if you, bet, I won't say broke the rules because there weren't rules, there were guidelines. If you varied from the guideline because you thought this person needed to see somebody and you brought, and something bad happened, that everybody would blame you and it would be your fault then that somebody else got COVID and had a poor outcome. So fear of blame was a huge driver now, for a, a lot of A huge driver for health workers. Did yes. that go right up the system to the top? Because yes. if you think about it, it, it and it, this was pointed out at the time, if you were on NEFIT or if you were in the government, if you took a chance, something bad happens. Were, were people, were people um, uh, incentivized not to take any chances at all. Is that why we ended up being uh, as cautious as we were? I think a huge part of why we ended up being as cautious as we are is because people are afraid of being blamed. And, you know, the expression, I suppose from my point of view, I wouldn't say about it's not exactly taking a chance, but making a risk judgment and, and, and a humane judgment that this is necessary and that there's a certain level of risk that you have to accept. But be when I look, you know, if we become too focused on the short term harm and then then we lose. And when people get afraid, compassion is the first thing hit. When people are frightened for themselves or for others, then they lose their compassion. That's a, that's that's the way human beings are. So if we want to do better again, we also need, amongst other things, to find better systems of communicating about risk. Um, and being l less keen on blaming people when things go wrong. So when things go wrong, including what we're talking about now, the question should be, what have we done better? Mm. What could we have done better? Not who should we blame? But blame was a huge part because I was I was in regular contact with healthcare workers who were emailing me about some of these issues they were trying to deal with and phoning me. We did webinars. We had lots of contact with healthcare workers all over the, con the, hospital, the country, in hospitals, in nursing homes, private sector, public sector. And it was quite clear that for a lot of them, they were compassionate people who mm. were paralysed by fear. OK, yeah. Um, just before we leave it then, so on the, uh, on the maternity hospitals, would you say then that that was paternalistic? I, I, I think it was well-intentioned, but I think the restrictions were, were the, the consequence of the restrictions was too great for okay. the people. So, so would we, would I do it, you know, so 
and just to be clear on it, in terms of our infection prevention control advice was never zero visiting. I mean, it happened in many places that, that there was never the national guidance that, that there was zero visiting, but it did happen because of local assessments okay. of risk. But it, it, the consequences of that for, for women were, were disproportionate to the benefit. That isn't to say there wasn't benefit and it isn't. There was risk and, and having people visiting did bring in risk. But again, no more than that. There were certain risks we had to accept, in my view. OK. Uh, now, look, a lot of people are texting in to say our mortality rate was half that of our nearest neighbours, the UK. So should we, we should be thankful for all that was done right. And I know that you and you've made that point a few times now. You would accept that. Um, Brendan, Martin's empathy and compassion shines through all he says. The country owes him a debt of gratitude for the wisdom he brought to Neffet. Um Someone else pointed out, look, we will never know how many people did not die because of the decisions that were taken uh, during COVID. You'd agree with that as well? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, We did not see our mum for seven weeks. Got the call in the middle of the night that she'd passed. So sad. No closure. She did not get to church either. And she did not have COVID. That's Bernie and Donegal. I mean, look, there's there's plenty. There's more thousands. Than those. There's yeah. thousands, and it's and it's and and that hurt is very real, and and it, and it's lasting. And has it's, it scarred uh, your family? Well, um, again, it's not about me. I know, it's about I my know. mother. It's yeah. it's about what okay, she wanted. Yeah. It, so it's it, and I think so much of this was a, a lot of the discussion was about what visitors are, what you know, visitors' rights. Actually, I would have often said. Visitors have no rights. Yeah, it's the residents who have rights, and the focus needs to be on what. The, if the resident wanted to see somebody, well, it was the resident's right to see person that was important. It wasn't. Yeah. So I had no right, but my mother. Yeah. My mother had rights. And you know what? Endings are so important in terms of when people look back on the whole experience and, of life. And let, a bad ending. And let me just acknowledge that, in fairness, because as I said, the, the nursing home are really you've good. That, and yeah. when my mother was at the end, they let us all come and spend time with her. So it's really okay. important that the staff in that nursing home are, were super and, okay. and not, yeah, not yeah. a word of criticism. Of okay. Them okay. Then on the other hand, Texas says, I know many people who all are sadly upset by their family member not being allowed visitors in nursing homes. We're pleased their members survive COVID because the visitors were restricted. And again, you're not saying there's a black and white here. Like it's about it's about the, the balance of that. OK, please ask Professor Cormican if schools and colleges remained open, if retail was unrestricted, if social distancing was not mandated, would our health system have coped? Infections would have soared. Nursing home residents contracted COVID from outsiders coming in. And again, so nobody is suggesting, certainly I'm not suggesting that in the open to the paper, I refer to uh, to the approaches of 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 uh, Trump and Bolsonaro as, as dangerous and unsound. So it's not a question of, you know, it's not a question on the one hand of do nothing or, or on the other hand of zero COVID and zero risk. It's and it's not for me to dictate how this should be done. It is for us as a society to discuss if we ever have to do this again, how do we find the balance and to try to prepare and have the dialogue now so that we're ready for it. But so it's yeah. not what I want. It's what do we all want and, and how do we find that balance between accepting that there is a level of risk and that some people will, will, will get infected and some people will die. And how do we balance that with the harm that we might be doing to other people by taking the protection of one group? All health policy is balancing risks. It's very difficult. That's why it's so difficult. There aren't easy answers and it's not a job for doctors. It's a job for society and government. Yeah. 
listen there's so many more texts i could read you and so many more things we could uh we could talk about but uh we we better leave it there um martin cormican thanks very much um are, are you starting to regret that you stuck your head above the parapet well I was asked to speak to my colleagues last October about a reflection on COVID. And this was October of last year. And in my my role now is back in clinical and academic practice is to try to is to ask questions. Um, and so, no, I, I don't I, I, I read in prepare, preparation for our interview. I read the, the paper I wrote last October. There's nothing in it that I would change. Um, so I don't regret it. I I. I, I'm sorry if it's upset people, actually, because, you know, I'm not out to upset people. Yeah. But we have to have this this after action review, as I would call it. We have to look back at this, not to blame people and not to say. But but it's also a pretense to say everything was perfect. Everything wasn't perfect. There are things we might be able to do better if we look at this in an after action review and we and we're okay. honest with each other about. And that review, that and review is that. going to happen. And it, stage, I, I just say that I would like to see it being called an after action review than an inquiry. An inquiry scares people because it makes you think you're looking for somebody to blame. An after Everybody action review is a, is a specific thing. An after action review does a manual for how you do it. And it's about learning and doing better and not about blaming. Do you think we're going to need these learnings sooner rather than later? Is it inevitable that there's another one of these coming? Well, in a sense, we need them right away because the biggest public health challenge in my lifetime and for my children and for their children is, is climate change. Um, and and the harm that climate change is doing is probably already dwarfing SARS-CoV-2. So we already we have antibiotic resistance. We have we have a whole we have a whole bunch of major public health challenges that that are happening now. They're less, in, you know, and, and, and we actually have to do the learning now and start applying them to the big change because climate change is potentially the it's already, as I say, in some parts of the world having dramatic effects. It's the biggest public health challenge that I see ahead of us for the next 10 years. So we need to learn now and we need to act now. OK, Professor Martin Cormican, thank you very much. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1.